0: What I've realized is that you cannot be wed to a workplace, you kind of have to be wed to yourself. And I, I really believe that it's possible to, to get too invested in a job or in a workplace, because it, it, that means you're kind of losing sight of who you are in all of this. And so I, I'm a huge believer in making sure you know what your options are at all times. And so that your choosing to stay where you are in your job
1: is a positive decision. It's not passive. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the Gritty Nurse Podcast. Hi,
0: my name is Amy and I am the co-host and co-founder of the Gritty Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion related to health and healthcare. On our podcast, we shy away from nothing, discussing hot topics in healthcare, such as mental health, social justice, health equity, women's rights, and women's health, and nursing as a profession.
1: Hi, listeners. Thank you for joining, and I'm delighted to bring you my conversation with Amy Bernstein. Amy is a podcaster for the HBR Women at Work podcast. She's the editor at Harvard Business Review and the vice president and executive editorial director for Harvard Business Publishing. Amy grew up in New York City. She went to college at Yale. She made her way, after a few different journalism and writing jobs, up to Boston to Harvard Business Review. Now let's get to the conversation where I've asked her, what's it like? What does the editor of HBR do? Can you walk us through, maybe not a day in the life, but maybe sort of an overall 30,000-foot view of a week in the life of Amy Bernstein?
0: Well, yeah, we're we're six times a year a magazine, so let me give you sort of a, a cycle in the life, a magazine cycle in the life of Amy Bernstein. I oversee the um, everything that we print as the magazine. So um, I am looking at I'm helping to make decisions about what to run. I'm looking at every word. We are going to publish, Uh, so that's called top editing. I edit behind the senior editors, the executive editors. Um, I make sure that every single issue of the magazine serves the broadest possible swath of our subscribers, so I try to make sure that the mix works, that it is as relevant as can be to the greatest number of people who are paying to read us. Um, and making sure that over a course of the year that we're covering all the most important topics. Other considerations are, it's, it's not just about understanding what's happened. It's about trying to predict what will happen and helping our readers to prepare themselves because our readers are organizational leaders and they are grappling with some pretty naughty problems, economic problems, geopolitical problems, talent shortages, uh, competitive issues. And so our our mission is to help them be the best leaders they can
1: possibly be. In one of the podcast episodes, you were with your Co editors, and uh, you were saying, you know, editor, manager, delegator, you've worn all the hats, done all the roles, and you've made all the mistakes.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. It took me a long time to learn to delegate and to learn to trust. You know, editors are always going for perfection when you're developing an article and you're preparing it for publication. At the article level, you wanted to have the most perfect structure. You want the idea expressed in the most compelling language. There are, if it's not a hundred percent good, then it's a hundred percent bad in your eyes. That's just how how editors are. But as my span of consideration has changed, I've learned that I can't I can't edit every article. And actually, the magazine is not better for my having edited every article. Um, you want there to be variation and there are a lot of ways to get to good i've had a, it's it's taken me a long time to learn that and understanding that every article doesn't need to sound like me has been really really important so delegating i, I think most most new managers and particularly Women who tend to be perfectionists have trouble handing things off. But you have to realize that yours is not the only way to do something well. So that's a mistake I've made. I was once told by one of my managers that I really needed to work on my executive presence. And when she said that to me, I think I, I, think I actually like my brain had a little explosion because I had no idea what she was talking about. I believe I went off to my office after that meeting and Googled it. Um, So I had to learn a little bit about what that means. I'm still piecing that together. Um, And then the other mistakes I've made, and I've spoken about these before, are, you know, to think that, As long as I put my head down, I work really hard, that, you know, the good work will get recognized and I'll get what I deserve. Well, you know what? No, that's just
1: not how the world works. In one of the podcast episodes, Amy, you and your team covered the topic of authenticity and being able to bring your authentic self to work. Compare, contrast an article that you yourself wrote in 2014, entitled, Behave Yourself! where you discussed business etiquette and whether or not it matters.
0: Yeah, well, (laughs) I would say it matters a lot. It's going to continue to matter. But the codes of conduct, I think, have changed in that we have become more sensitive to dimensions of difference than we ever were before in 2014 we didn't consider pronouns for example um in 2014 we were i would say the sort of hbr at least was far less sensitive to the challenges facing people of color people who were underrepresented in the workplace that has taken those those considerations have come to the fore and thank god they have it is that the, these considerations are long overdue and our code of conduct has to change for us to be more open and, and more embracing of difference so i think that etiquette is not going to go away P- the priorities that we embrace individually in his organizations, will continue to evolve. I hope to address the gaps in our behavior and our misbehavior.
1: As editor of HBR, what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? Well,
0: it's, it's, it's worrying that we're going to miss something, that we're not going to serve our, our readers, that we're going to leave them high and dry when when the next jolt hits Um, i always want to make sure that we are offering the most useful information the most useful insight to them so that they can arm themselves against the next you know the next competitive attack the next the next crisis i mean we're going we're we're just moving from crisis to crisis the other thing is we want to help our readers identify and seize opportunity and we most of all want them to we want to help them lead as well as they possibly can lead to make positive change and so i i worry that you know if when i worry it's i worry that um that we're somehow not addressing an emerging challenge.
1: Tell us about Amy Bernstein's voice. When did you realize you had a voice? And when did you start using that voice, be it aloud or even on paper?
0: Oh, wow. That's such a, that's such a good question. You know what? I kind of realized it when it, it, it's funny. I realized it because when I, when I realized that I wasn't using it, and then I was waiting to be, you know, given my due because I was such a, a great doobie. And I, you know, I was getting all the work done and I was doing it well. And I was, you know, in early and, and out late. So um, I think I realized it in its absence because it, I felt like it was holding me back and I was frustrated. So I realized that I had to, I had to ask for what I wanted. And that there was no shame in that. Um, And then as I sort of advanced in my career and I realized I could help others, that's when I started realizing that, you know, it didn't have to be me up in front of a huge group of people making demands, that there are ways to use your voice, which is another way, way of saying ways to assert your influence in the service of others. Um. It's harder to do it for oneself, but you have to realize that you better do it because, you know, waiting for someone else to do it for you is going gonna, is gonna to be very frustrating.
1: One of the themes that I've culled, I want to use that word right there, culled from some of the podcast episodes and some accompanying articles is... Aging in the workplace and this concept oh, yeah. of <laughs> appearance, and you know, what happens to everybody as they age in terms of their physical appearance. When you and I had a nice pre meet, you were telling me that you know, you actually feel like you're hitting your stride, and yet sometimes workplaces determine when someone is done before they've decided they're done. So, I want to Dive a little bit into this concept of aging mm-hmm. in the workplace, uh, women aging in the workplace, and yeah. you know to what extent is it on your subconscious? It's on my mind a lot. My
0: friends and I, you know, friends friends who have been my friends for fifty years, and I talk about this a lot because I was just having I was just having dinner with three high school friends all of whom are at this point in our careers where we're sort of feeling like, yeah, we, we really get what we're doing, we really enjoy it, we're confident, and we're also highly conscious of a ticking clock. So the world is not kind to older women, and it is much kinder t- to older men. A gray-haired woman and a gray-haired man don't hit people the same way. And I, you know, if you asked yourself honestly if that's true, you'd probably say yes. So what I've realized is that you cannot be wed to a workplace. You kind of have to be wed to yourself. And I, I really believe that it's possible to, to get too invested in a job or in a workplace. Because it, it, that means you're kind of losing sight of who you are in all of this. And so I, I'm a huge believer in making sure you know what your options are at all times. And so that your choosing to stay where you are in your job is a positive decision it's not passive.
1: I and the listeners are now wondering uh, what bad things have happened to you. Have you had things happen as you aged, or comments, slights? Is there anything specific?
0: You know, nothing major. Nothing. No one. You know, I'm sort of. I'm not hiding it. I'm. You knew my age. Um, it's it's not a secret. The year of my college graduation is right there on my LinkedIn. I've actually thought of taking it off because I thought, oh boy, look what I'm giving away. And then I thought, well, yeah, I'm not going to be that person. I've watched it happen with others. I've watched it happen with others. And when I was at CBS News, I watched women hit the age of 50 and suddenly be part of the big layoff over and over again.
1: I ask, and I would expect it to be subtle, very subtle, and not some major thing or major insult or major, um, one of my first pieces that I wrote that was more using my voice, a little bit more provocative in terms of equity in the workplace, was in an academic journal. And it was entitled, Is Academic Medicine Making Mid-Career Women Invisible? Because what I was seeing was friends, older than I, slowly disappearing literally and figuratively, of their own volition and not of their own volition. And, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so glad to be speaking with you, and I really am a loyal reader of HBR, is um, medicine and healthcare is an industry similar to all the other industries and people that you're serving. So the articles that come out are very relevant to healthcare and medicine, on leadership, on people management, on, you know, Uh, harassment on all the articles that come out. And so I am not surprised what you're sharing about women as they age. There's a classic editorial, I did not write it, um, called Jennifer Can't Grow Up, Uh, Jane is Invisible, and Janet is Over the Hill. Because what I see is, you know, there's this early career, mid career, late career, and particularly late career, we really see women disappear in a way and almost like you don't see them rise in leadership you don't see them hold on to their jobs for decades you know and and yeah so I was wondering the extent to which you feel it you see it and has anything changed
0: well I'll tell you you've really articulated that perfectly because I think what happens what I've seen and sometimes felt are not sins of commission their sins of omission and you know you never know what motivates not being included in you know the what not being given a speaking part not being you know not being included in the meeting or in the big project it makes you wonder why um and one can only guess Fortunately, uh, you know, I work in a place that is, you know, where respect really is woven into the culture and, and decency and kindness. And I don't think that it happens that much where I work, but I know it happens all over the place a lot. And women over the age of 50 disappear. And when you say it to a woman under the age of 50, I've noticed this, she, she won't get it.
1: Well, I think there's a feeling it's not going to happen to me until it right. happens to them. And I, it would be, we would be remiss if we didn't mention intersectionality, that it may happen to oh women. Gosh, yeah. But you know when you have uh, compounding identities in terms of marginalization, women of color, even more so, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of underrepresented, marginalized in the workplace. Yeah. And that even ties into a, I I totally agree. It ties into another favorite discussion you had with Claudia Golden about salary and salary equity. And again, like this is a report just came out. uh, I think it was the ACGME Uh, in terms of every single specialty in medicine, women make almost $30,000 less for the same work. I'm actually
0: pretty hopeful because I see women moving into positions of authority where they are going to make decisions about salaries and about tenure and about who's getting promoted and who's not getting promoted. Um, and And I think that, we're going to see a different set of rules take hold i mean we have a new head of hr she's not that new she's been here at least a year and she is she is bringing a a sense of equity to every decision she makes and is doing it with such transparency and it's all quite new and super refreshing. Uh, and I think we're going to be seeing that a lot across sectors. So I'm I'm pretty optimistic here.
1: Can you share with us some of your favorite pieces that HBR has put out?
0: The one I often find myself referring to is an article called The Authenticity Paradox by Herminia Ibarra, uh, who is at the London Business School. Um, and it's about What I love about this article is, you know, we live in an era where keeping it real is sort of the coin of the realm. And we talk about authenticity ad nauseum. But what Herminia wrote in that article is that for women who are growing into leadership, you know, keeping it real is a way of keeping yourself from growing. You have to try on different approaches different personas to find the one that's right for you so you have to understand what authenticity really is sometimes authenticity is really not about making yourself comfortable you know sometimes authenticity is about soaring out of your comfort zone and saying you know what i've never done this before i love whatever feedback you can give me on my behavior here or, or my performance here but I got to try this out. Right? It's it's how you're being true to yourself. And I hope what the way you're true to yourself is a way that propels your growth and gets you where you want to go. It's
1: not one that keeps you in your box. The women at work podcast. Tell us about how that feels what it means to you and how it has actually made you more authentic.
0: Well, I absolutely love this podcast. You know, it was our response to Me Too. We were trying to figure out what, how, do, how does HBR tackle this? Um, and my colleague Maureen Hoke came up with the idea for the Women at Work podcast. It was just pure genius on her part. Um, what it has done is it's made me, um, well, first of all, I get to work with people I don't normally get to work with. So all of the hosts... Sarah Green Carmichael and Nicole Torres and Amy Gallo and you know on and on we have had it has been such a great experience getting to work with these women Emily Caulfield um, and Amanda Kersey of course our producer who is the reason for whatever is good about the Women at Work podcast goes right to Amanda's hard work. Um, HBR usually speaks with a kind of impersonal voice. Women at work is loaded with personalities. So I love that. I love being able to sort of be me on the podcast. Um, It has helped me find my voice and use it more. I mean, it's a podcast. It's about that. Um, I love being... In contact with the people we're serving, you know, we we have our listeners on the podcast, and we get to speak with them directly and help them make connections to the insights that can help those help them from the experts who are doing the work. I love that. I love that. It's sort of doing what we do in real time rather than on an every other month cadence, which is what I do in the magazine. So doing that, and also I'm an auditory learner. I I can listen to podcasts all day long. I love the radio. I remember what I hear. So the, the podcasts have a sort of special place
1: in my heart. Leadership, not only is HBR the place people go to read and listen about leadership and to become better leaders, um, it all starts with the self and I'm wondering what you think about when you think about Amy Bernstein as leader and the type of leadership you like to wear you know i think a
0: lot about values as as a leader and i hope that i what matters to me is integrity kindness openness and generosity that those and you know and and um, performance. I care a lot about quality. I care a lot about, uh, making sure that what we do is brilliant and that it, it, it is, it serves our readers and that our editors and our designers and our production professionals feel proud of what they do. Um, so that's, that matters a lot, but, um, you know, at some point getting ahead stopped mattering to me, um, and doing well started to matter more. Um, but I had to f- kept keep thinking about what that meant and that, and that definitely evolves. Uh, and I do, I, I, I absolutely buy Herminia Ibarra's argument from the authenticity paradox, this article I love so much. Um, that you have to figure out what you want to stand for as a leader and you have to you have to sort of make sure that your behavior and your words reinforce that and it shouldn't be super hard i mean that's just me speaking but if it's internalized it sort of happens it doesn't have you don't have to think about everything all the time
1: the Risa wrap-up. Special thanks to Amy Bernstein. Thank you, Amy, for joining me in conversation. I really, really valued hearing your experience, your experience in leadership, learning how to delegate, learning how to let things go, and also learning how to grow. And that meant asking. Rather than working diligently, head down and not asking and looking, really realizing the need to sort of use your voice and ask. Listeners, Harvard Business Review, good stuff, good articles, and I think relevant to every industry, every job, and every way you're trying to navigate this thing called the workplace. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media, at Risa E. Lewis, and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.